Our last installment of John 19 is where we're going to be this morning, so if you have your Bibles, you can turn to John 19. We're going to be looking at the final verses of this chapter and focusing again on the work of our King in fulfillment to the predetermined will of God. It's John, again, that most strongly highlights the work of Christ at Calvary as a kingly role, a kingly function that he had to fulfill based on the appointment of God, not only Jesus as king, but a king that would suffer and die for his people. And it's from this that we more clearly see that the cross is the focal point of the eternal kingdom of God, a kingdom promised from the pages of Old Testament scripture. And once again, as we've seen throughout this study of the crucifixion, John points to the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies. And along with this study, we have been along this journey looking at the seven declarations of Christ from the cross as recorded in the four Gospels. We're going to look at the sixth of those this morning, and I'm going to reserve the seventh declaration of Christ for this Good Friday service coming up this week. But I'd like to reserve that seventh saying for the Good Friday service because of how it caps off everything we've been looking at so far in John's presentation of the crucifixion of Christ. What is curious about the text before us, and I want you to note this before we follow along and read that together, is that John uses about as many words for the death of Christ as he does for the crucifixion. From about verse 17 to verse 30, we see the crucifixion. But from verse 30 to the end of the chapter, John deals with the dead body of Jesus Christ. And that alerts us to the importance of this reality. Jesus Christ, Son of God, died. He died on the cross. And this emphasizes that Jesus not only was the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy, but he fulfilled the Old Testament sacrificial system. So follow along with me as we read in this account of John's of the death of Christ. Verse 28. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things had already been accomplished to fulfill the scriptures, said, I am thirsty. A jar full of sour wine was standing there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine upon a branch of hyssop and brought it up to his mouth. And therefore, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Then the Jews, because it was the day of preparation, so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, asked Pilate that their legs might be broken And that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first man and of the other who was crucified with him. But coming to Jesus, when they saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and immediately blood and water came out. And he who has seen has testified, and his testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth, so that you also may believe. For these things came to pass to fulfill the scriptures, not a bone of him shall be broken. And again, another scripture says, they shall look on him whom they have pierced. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but a secret one for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate granted permission. 
So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus, who had come to him by night, also came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred pounds weight. So they took the body of Jesus, bound it in linen wrappings with the spices at his burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. Therefore, because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. Father in heaven, we give this hour of our worship to you as we open up the word together. We try to understand it, and I pray that you will help me in that explanation. But grant, Father, that all of us would be given the, the measure of spirit that opens our hearts and minds to see the glory of what is taking place here in John 19. And having understood it, Father, it will draw us closer in devotion, in love, and in zeal for you. We thank you for this marvelous text and for the marvelous story it tells. We thank you for a living Savior, but a Savior also, who died to bear our sins. Let him be praised this hour. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. The focus of our attention today is going to be on the victory of the king. And by the world's standards, the death of anybody doesn't necessarily sound like victory. It is not the case with Jesus Christ. Many years ago, and some of you that are closer to my age may remember a Neil Diamond song that was made famous on one of his albums, and it was entitled, Done Too Soon. And the song begins with the name of Jesus Christ and that lists many famous as well as infamous names down through the centuries. After Jesus Christ, Mozart, Humphrey Bogart, Genghis Khan, Ho Chi Minh, John Wilkes Booth, all the way down to Karl Marx and Buster Keaton. The song then presumes that all of those names, all of those people have one thing in common. And this is the closing lyric to that song. They all sweated beneath the same sun. They looked in wonder at the same moon. And they wept when it was all done for being done too soon. I think we all recognize that musical artists take liberties with the truth. Poetic license, it's called. However, to put the life and the death of Jesus Christ in comparison to any other is to miss reality altogether. And to suggest that Jesus wept when it was all done for being done too soon is nothing less than heretical. It is heresy. But this is a view that is not limited to Hollywood or the music industry. This is the mindset of all who would reject Jesus Christ as their Savior because none see the true glory and majesty in the death of Christ. Done too soon? Hardly. And this is what the scripture before us is declaring, especially as we focus on John's final declaration of Christ from the cross. It is finished. Paul reminds us in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 18 that for the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to those of us who are saved, it is the power of God. That's Christ's death. It is the power of God. And the dying words of Jesus Christ is a testament to God's power to save sinners. And as one author wrote, Jesus died with the cry of the victor on his lips. Jesus died with the cry of the victor on his lips. 
This is going to be the theme of our study this morning. From his final breath to his burial, Jesus died proclaiming the triumph of his sacrifice. This is about his victory. And we begin with the declaration itself, the victor's declaration. In verse 30, Therefore, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. He bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Now, there is one more, uh, again, saying of Christ declared from the cross that will emphasize this, this reality even more. But while John's treatment of these final moments in the life of Christ is very brief, he does add a couple of significant points that build upon this drama in this final declaration. It is finished. And the first is the loudness of the proclamation itself. Notice that John places the proclamation of Christ immediately following the receiving of the sour wine. Now that's important because John knows what the other three gospel writers have said. And if we look at Matthew, Mark, and as well at Luke, after Jesus had received the sour wine, it says he cried out with a loud voice, and then he breathed his last. This is a proclamation. This is a, this is a testimony of the power of the words of Christ himself. Because we tend to think that Jesus is in his final moments. We can see him hour after hour gasping for breath, having to push up on his heels just to get his lungs to bring in a new breath. Six hours of this, his throat is parched. He asks for a drink. He gets vinegar. And it's just enough to maybe loosen up his vocal cords. And we would think at that moment, he's saying, I'm thirsty, barely getting the words out. And then he says, it is finished. But that's not how he said it. He said, it is finished. It was a cry of triumph. And there were power in those words that had effect on the bystanders. We're going to see that through this study. This is the same voice that spoke creation into existence. It is the same voice that commanded the storms and they ceased, commanded the demons and they retreated. It's the same voice that called Lazarus out of the tomb. And it's the same voice that in the garden cast his arresting mob to the ground when he declared, I am, I'm the one you're looking for. What this tells us is that Jesus does not draw his last breath in hopeless resignation, not in despair, not in defeat. This was a triumphant proclamation of the completion of a monumental work. Second, John notices the personal resignation, or we might say personal surrender. I have chosen not to use that word surrender in your note sheet only because This is a scene of victory and not of defeat. But Jesus was surrendering his spirit. He was not surrendering to the mob. He was not surrendering to Rome. He was not giving way to the demands of mankind. But this was a resignation of the Savior to the will of the Father. In spite of the truth that Jesus was nailed to a cross and put to death by the hands of godless men, as as Peter would preach in Acts chapter 2. In spite of that, these are the words of Jesus from John chapter 10, if you want to turn back there and see it yourself. In John chapter 10, verse 17 to 18, 
Jesus said, fulfilling this promise on the cross, he said prior to this, for this reason the Father loves me because I laid down my life so that I may take it up again. No one has taken it from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I've received from my Father. What Jesus was doing at that moment on the cross when he declared it is finished and he drew his final breath, he was submitting himself of his own free will to the will of the Father. And this was an expression of his love for the Father because the Father had given, had ordained for his Son this death. No one was able to take his life from him. In truth, Jesus willingly submitted himself to what his father had asked of him, and therefore he allowed godless men to nail him to a cross, allowing them to bring his physical body to a place of death. But if the Son of God was going to die, Jesus would have to release himself because men could not kill God's Son. He would have to surrender his spirit over to the grave. And this is what John affirms. And it builds upon the victory that the loud cry of Jesus was declaring for all to hear. Jesus gave up his spirit on the cross to finish the work that God had given him to accomplish. And this brings us to the declaration itself. And John again is building on this moment the importance of this death by the declaration that he records here from Christ. It is finished. The finished work of Christ. Now, there's yet one more thing for Christ to do, isn't there? The moment he says those three words, he now must die. So there is one more part to this. That's why John acknowledges the very next thing he did following those words is that he died. Now, there are three words here in our English language. It is finished, but not in the Greek. It is just one word. And we might say, Done. That's what Christ was declaring. Finished. And the word in the Greek language means that which is being accomplished, finished, or completed. So our our English translation gets it exactly right. It is finished. The same word, verse 28, when he said all things had been what? Accomplished. Finished. It's done. And this helps us to understand more fully what Jesus meant when he said... It is finished. It's complete. It's done. And I want to consider three areas that Jesus is telling us his work on the cross at that moment was was finishing. It was completed. First, Jesus was declaring that all of the prophecies are fulfilled that spoke of Messiah's redemptive work. Now, of course, there are more prophecies yet to be fulfilled, even prophecies regarding Christ, his return, the establishment of his kingdom. More of the redeemed are going to be gathered in. There is the church age yet to come, and Scripture talks about all of these things. But from the incarnation of Christ to his grave, all that God had written of his Son to accomplish has now been fulfilled at that very moment. From Luke chapter 18 and verse 31, just prior to the Lord's triumphal entry into Jerusalem, he took his disciples aside and he said these words, Behold, we're going up to Jerusalem, and all things which are written through the prophets about the Son of Man will be 
accomplished. The same word. It will be fulfilled. It will be complete. And this is what Jesus cried out in the final moments of his crucifixion. He had done all that scripture had foretold of him. And we could trace our way back through the beginning in Genesis all the way to the present where Messiah must come of the seed of the woman in Genesis chapter 3. In Isaiah 7, he was to be born of a virgin. In the word of God, he comes from the lineage of Abraham and to be a descendant of David. Genesis 22 and 2 Samuel 7, born in Bethlehem of Judea, yet called out of Egypt. Micah 5 and Hosea 11. There would be one called to go before the Messiah, fulfilled in John the Baptist. Jesus would open, or Messiah would open the eyes of the blind, the the lame will walk, the deaf will hear, and the mute will speak. Isaiah 35. The triumphal entry is foretold. In Zechariah chapter 9, his suffering, being betrayed, abandoned, as well as the details of the cross, all part of Old Testament prophecies, including his thirst from Psalm 69. And we read about these sufferings in passages like Isaiah 52 and 53. It is finished meant that Jesus had fulfilled all that God had ordained for his son to accomplish through the Old Testament prophets. And we've noted through John's explanation of this story, of the account of the cross, how many times has he said, this was to fulfill, this was to fulfill. Every word that God had said of his son and his messianic redemption, Jesus had now completed at that very moment. It is finished. Second, the declaration is telling us that redemption is here complete. And I think even even greater significance Jesus Christ is declaring that God's plan of redemption is fulfilled here. The Old Testament system of animal sacrifices, it was established to show sinful humanity the need of atonement, that our sins had separated us from a holy God. And remember what it says in Habakkuk 1, the eyes of God are too pure to approve evil. He cannot even look at wickedness. With favor. It is why God turned his face away from his son. And Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But the sacrificial system could only show man his need of salvation, it could never provide salvation. The law of God given through Moses showed man his sinful condition, it showed man that he was powerless to uphold the righteousness in a way that would earn or merit the favor of God. The animal sacrifices were meant to show man his need of a substitute offering for sin. But neither men nor animals could provide the cleansing of sin that God required in his perfect justice, that his perfect holiness demanded. And as the author of Hebrews wrote, it is therefore impossible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sin. And this was affirmed by the prophecy found in Old Testament in Psalm 40, where it says, In whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you, God, have taken no pleasure. Imagine. In whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, God has not taken pleasure? Was not God the one that ordained those sacrifices? How could not God not be pleased? Well, he was certainly pleased with Israel's obedience in those sacrifices. But what that passage in Psalm is saying 
is the blood of animals could never satisfy God's demand for righteousness. There would be need to be another, another who would give his life. And it's within this plan of atonement that Jesus declared it is finished because he was the other. He was the one appointed by God, God's Messiah. This one must provide atonement. God's Son was appointed to take on flesh and to represent humanity. He lived the perfect, sinless life that we could never live. And this would make Jesus the perfect substitute offering to God, an offering that God would be pleased with. And as John the Baptist proclaimed of Jesus, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Then having lived in perfect holiness... Before humanity, Jesus Christ endured the suffering and shame of the cross. We saw that last week, at least in part. Christ accepted the judgment of God on our sins when our sins were laid on him. Jesus was nailed to the cross as a blood sacrifice that God required to atone for sins. Because as the scripture says in Hebrews 9, without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness of sin. And there on the cross, Jesus was made to be sin on our behalf. He became a curse for us again. We saw that last week. And he willingly received the wrath of God for our sake. And God withdrew his presence. He withdrew his favor from his son in those three hours of darkness at Calvary. And when God was satisfied that Jesus had endured what our sins deserved, Jesus loudly cries, It is now finished. I've done what is necessary for the sins of my people. The blood of Jesus was spilled. He surrendered his spirit, bringing about the death that God required to make payment for sins. Paul wrote of that in Romans 6. The wages of sin is death. Here on the cross in this moment, we're looking at how significant John is saying that our king would die. It's important, John writes. So much so In verse 35, so that you may believe. So that you may believe. In Matthew 27 and verse 51, we are given the confirmation that in the cry of God's Son and the yielding up of His Spirit, God accepted that sacrifice. He accepted that offering. Because Matthew records that the veil in the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. God was declaring, now my son has died. He'd made full payment for sins. And God himself was tearing apart the veil that separated sinful man from the holy presence of God. Now there is a way in to fellowship with God. Now there is access into the kingdom of God, and it's through faith in his son. It was not until God's son poured out his blood, paid the full wage for sin, and gave up his life, did God remove that barrier. So the tearing of the veil was God's declaration that is now complete. Echoing what his son had just declared loudly, it is finished. And God is saying, yes, it is finished, and I accept it. Atonement has been made for sinful man. The full price has been paid. And now access into the presence of God is available to all who come to him by faith And trust in the Son's sacrifice. It's complete. And the God of heaven accepted that payment. Forgiveness of sin is now available 
to all who believe, and fellowship between God and man has now been restored because it is finished. And this brings us to one more reality that I believe is extremely important for us to understand as John presents to us Jesus, the king that died. And that is that our citizenship here at the cross, in the proclamation of Christ, it has been established. John's presentation of the cross has highlighted the work of Jesus Christ as our king. And the king that God has appointed to redeem the people of God, making full atonement for their sins, declaring his victory there on the cross. His victorious sacrifice on the cross made possible the citizenship of sinners into the eternal kingdom of God. See, this was our victory cry as well. It's finished. It's done. Christ is writing up our citizenship papers here. The Apostle Paul writes to believers of this in Ephesians chapter 2. I encourage you to go there, Ephesians chapter 2, as I highlight a couple of verses where this reality becomes important to Paul writing to the church in Ephesus. Paul writes in Ephesians 2 verse 13, But now in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off, have been brought near by what? The blood of Christ. It is the blood of Christ that is emblematic of his death. His pouring out of blood is a declaration that Christ died. He gave up his spirit. Paul went on to write that this sacrifice, this blood sacrifice of Christ, has brought Jew and Gentile together as believers, as one people of God. And then he continues down in Ephesians 2, verse 18 and 19. For through him we both have access into one spirit, to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household. It's the blood of Christ, it's the death of Christ that has done this. And based on the work of the Spirit who breathes new life, who regenerates, causing us to be born again, the Jew and Gentile, both now formerly strangers and aliens, now we are fellow citizens with the saints, and we're part of God's household. That's our citizenship. Because all has been finished by Christ on the cross, leaving nothing out that needed to be done for our salvation. The only possible then access into God's eternal kingdom, and that which is required for citizenship, is faith in that finished work. And it's why Paul preceded that description of citizenship with these memorable words. Our memory verses. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God. It is not of our works, lest any of us should boast. So then how are we to enter into that citizenship? It's the blood of Christ, is it not? He died. So I put my faith in that. I have access into the kingdom and to citizenship with Christ. From the very beginning of man's fall in the garden, our good works have been unacceptable to God. We must trust entirely on the completed work of our king for access into his eternal kingdom. And therefore, when Jesus said it is finished, he was declaring that citizenship is only possible through him. And this brings us back to our text in John chapter 19 where John continues to focus 
on the death of Christ. And that's why I believe verse 30 belongs with the rest of those verses all the way to the end of the chapter. Because John is here emphasizing the death of the king, the death of Christ, death of Messiah. And this is not a gloomy death. This is a victorious death. We typically, on our Good Friday service, we try to emphasize the gloom of the Christ's suffering. And I think we reverence him when we do that. But we often encourage us, go out quietly and in gloom. This passage changes my attitude on that, honestly. Because the victory took place on the cross the moment he died. This was a victorious, triumphant moment for us as believers. And John confirms something that we need to understand here. Jesus was dead. He died. Here's the confirmation, verse 31 to 37. He stresses, John stresses the accuracy of the death of Jesus as a confirmation that the cross was victorious. Here is the triumph of redemption. Everything we are as believers was earned right here. There were claims that arose later down through history that Jesus did not actually die. And this is why John is emphasizing this. There were those that claimed, oh, he just went into a coma or he just passed out. He was revived in the tomb. He got out later. John exposes the hypocrisy of the Jews here who are concerned about having executions taking place or a dying body on the tree during the Sabbath. And that's based on an Old Testament law. But it's interesting in this hypocrisy how they focus in on that one detail that really troubles them. But here they've just murdered an innocent man. And not only that, they have rejected the messianic credentials that were clearly in Christ. They were clearly there and visible to see. But what are they concerned about? Well, once again, they're not concerned that they just murdered an innocent man. They're concerned that that body is hanging on a tree, rolling into the Sabbath day. We can't stand for that. So by the reckoning of the other Gospels, we know by this time it's about 3 o'clock in the afternoon. The Sabbath begins at sundown, about 6. So they got just three hours. We've got to get this body off, get ourselves all cleaned up for the Sabbath, which begins at 6 on Friday. So to avoid breaking the law, the Jews made request of Pilate, can you break the legs of those being crucified so they'd just die and expire quickly? Now this was an extremely gruesome and painful addition to crucifixion because they'd take a large mallet and they'd bust the lower legs, which is painful enough, but then that victim would just drop slumped down. They would no longer be able to push up off their heels and capture a breath, so they're going to slowly, within the next few minutes, suffocate or affiscate. They do it much sooner than they would have otherwise. And apparently a crucifixion could take one to two days. And that's what Rome really preferred. Contrary to this preference, Pilate grants the request, and the soldiers come to break the legs of the three being executed. The two criminals on either side of Jesus were still alive, and therefore their legs were broken. But John wants us to understand Jesus was already dead. So his legs were not broken. Rather, a soldier pierced the side of Jesus with a spear, and John writes that immediately blood and water come out of the side. 
Now, there's been a large amount of study and controversy over the meaning of blood and water coming out of the side of Jesus. I think every commentary I read had researched with medical people that were trying to explain what was taking place here, and there isn't a whole lot of agreement on why the blood and water. I'm not a medical person, so I'm not even going to go there. But what is a clear emphasis in this text that John wants us to understand comes out in verse 35, Jesus was most certainly dead. Those soldiers knew when somebody was dead on a cross. They shove a spear in his side because they could clearly see this guy is gone. No need to break his legs. And this was an important detail that fulfilled the word of God. In Psalm 34 and verse 20, it says the bones were not to be broken. But more than that, if you go back further into Exodus, what about the Passover lamb do we know? The Passover lamb in being prepared for the Passover meal. None of the bones were to be broken, right? That Passover lamb celebration pointed forward to Messiah. It wasn't about the lamb. It was always about the Messiah. It was a picture of the Messiah. Why is it important that the lamb's legs or bones not be broken? Well, there may be a lot of other reasons, but one reason is clearly obvious to us. It's because it proved that Jesus died on the cross. They didn't need to break his bones. And so all along, the Passover down through the centuries, as they celebrated that that Passover lamb and the exodus out of Egypt, the not breaking of bones was pointing forward to Christ who literally must die on the cross as the Lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world. Jesus died of his own accord, not because the Romans smashed his legs. He gave up his own spirit And he literally was died. This is what John wants us to know. It's why he says in verse 35, and he who has seen this testifies. That's himself. I've seen. I've testified. And my testimony is true. And he knows that he's telling the truth so that you may believe. Believe what? Believe that Messiah, our king, died there on the cross. It is critical to our understanding because that follows the declaration It is all finished. We have the absolute assurance that everything necessary for our redemption, our citizenship, and fellowship with God was done by Christ because he died. Isaiah 53 foretold Jesus was like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and his grave was assigned with wicked men who died alongside Jesus. He fulfilled this. Jesus fulfilled Isaiah 53. And this brings us to the final few verses, verse 38 to 42, where this king, this victory, is venerated in a most unusual way. Typically, when a queen or a king dies, there's all this royal celebration. Well, here we see a humble veneration or reverence showed to the king who has just died, and in a very unusual way. But this is what John wants us again to understand about Jesus. He died, and he was honored for who he was as a king, a king that died. The last five verses of John 19 gives us a portrayal of two followers of Jesus who have come to honor him 
by seeing that his body was respectfully cared for and buried in a tomb. Now, no doubt, when Isaiah 53 says that Messiah was with a rich man in his death, this is a reference to Joseph of Arimathea and possibly to Nicodemus as well. Because according to Matthew, his account, Joseph was a wealthy man. Mark adds that he was also a prominent member of the Sanhedrin. He's also described by Luke as a good and a righteous man, and that Joseph had not consented with the others on the Sanhedrin council to condemn Christ. Now, in previous study, we've noted that all on the council were in favor of seeing Jesus Christ crucified. This means that Joseph withdrew himself from that council because the whole council agreed against Christ to have him murdered or crucified. But Joseph, in his fear of the Jews, had withdrawn, but he did not consent with the others to crucify or condemn Christ. Joseph went to Pilate, who granted him permission to take the body of Jesus. And it tells us in the other gospel accounts that Joseph himself went to the cross, took down the body, wrapped it in linen. Unfortunately, Joseph was also a man that was fearful of the Jews and therefore is acknowledged as a secret disciple of Christ, at least in the past, until now. Perhaps here at the cross, Joseph had decided it was time to take a stand, to come out in the open and show his reverence for the Lord. In witnessing how Jesus died, there was a shift in his lack of courage because Mark tells us that Joseph was waiting for the kingdom of God. He was waiting for the kingdom of God. And by the public display of honoring the Lord, he is now showing, it appears, that he believes that Jesus is that king of the Jews. He'd watched this, this, this trial take place. He watched the execution unfold, the placard above the head of Jesus, people mocking Jesus as the king of the Jews. He'd witnessed this, this person who claimed to be a king, extending forgiveness to his tormentors, turning to one of the criminals and making a promise, today you're going to be in my kingdom. Today you're going to be in my paradise. He witnessed the darkness of the hour in the last three hours of Christ's life. He witnessed Jesus receiving the wine, and he heard the the triumphant loud cry, It is finished. And he watched him die. There was something in that event that changed this man's heart. No longer was he going to be secret but he openly displayed his faith in Christ, or at least I believe what is a saving faith in Christ, dispelling his his fear. This man showed his courage when he took the body of Jesus and honored it with the burial process. Nicodemus also took part in the care of Jesus. He was also a member of the Sanhedrin. And every indication from John's gospel is that Nicodemus was also fearful of Jews. Remember John 3, came to Jesus by night. We recall that Nicodemus was probably as fearful as Joseph of what the the Sanhedrin might do or the, the synagogue, being thrown out of the synagogue, the consequences. Jesus had a lengthy discussion with Nicodemus 
that night in John 3, where Jesus talked to him about being born again and that eternal life comes by believing in the Son of God. Now, we are not told that Nicodemus became a believer at that time, but later in John chapter 7, we saw how Nicodemus had challenged the other Pharisees to be fair in treating Christ according to the law. But it's not until we read here in John 19 that Nicodemus gives clear evidence of his reverence for this man that had just died. And that's the peculiar part, isn't it? What brought these two men out of fear and granted them courage? They watched who was being claimed to be a king, a man die. That's hardly in the world's eyes a triumphant moment. There was something in the six hours of Christ's suffering and his death on the cross and how he died that convinced them this is the true king. This indeed is the son of God. That's what the, the centurion declared, wasn't it? Truly, this was the Son of God. Now, we're not told directly that these two men were believers. But notice in John, it is nonetheless the Holy Spirit who has caused John to write that Joseph was a what? Disciple of Jesus. He was a disciple of Jesus, verse 38. If the Holy Spirit is going to confirm that, then I believe he truly was a disciple of Christ. John shows that these two men no longer were hiding in the shadows out of fear of the Jews. Both men, by taking the body of Jesus down from the cross, bringing the Lord to a new tomb, treating the body for burial, that would have openly exposed the reverence for Jesus before the Jewish community. Perhaps they had witnessed some of the foul treatment of Jesus during his trial and execution, and they'd come under the conviction of the Holy Spirit. They could hide their faith in Christ no longer. And with a fresh boldness in their faith, they take a public stand to be seen as followers of Jesus, again, a Jesus that they had just seen die. Somebody dying isn't necessarily a good conviction that this person is of God. So something had to tell these men, truly, he is the Son of God. He is the King to be honored and reverenced. Joseph was responsible for acquiring the body of Jesus, removing him from the cross. Nicodemus joins him at some point with about 65 pounds in our measurement today of these costly ointments and aromatic powders, these spices that they treat the body of Christ with. And the Jewish tradition was, of course, to wrap them in linen and these aromatic spices to kind of camouflage the odor of decay in a dead body. But since they only had a short time until sundown, then when Sabbath day begins, they needed to work quickly with the anticipation that they would apply more care later on after the Sabbath day. John tells us that Joseph and Nicodemus needed to get Jesus into the tomb quickly, and therefore they used a tomb that was close at hand that Matthew tells us belonged to Joseph. The Jewish day of preparation was almost over. Friday was almost over preparing for the Sabbath day. And this was a more important Sabbath day than most every because this is Passover Sabbath. No work was going to take place. Now, the tomb here was not a cave, but it was a man-made tomb carved into the rock to provide for burial. And we have to assume here, Joseph intended that for himself or his family. It's a new tomb never before used. 
but Joseph found a higher calling for it than just for himself. Once Jesus was placed inside, a large stone rolled over to seal the entrance. The other Gospels tell us that several women were watching. A couple of the Marys, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Joseph, and Salome, the mother of James and John. These women saw where the body of Jesus was laid to rest. And this is important because they would be there Sunday morning to bring that additional care to the corpse of of Christ. And it's here in the tomb of a rich man that the king was buried, but only for three days as prophesied by the Lord himself in Matthew 12. And while the world and the religious alike treated Jesus with such contempt and hostility, Joseph and Nicodemus came out of their secret devotion to openly show reverence and honor to the one they believed to be king. I suppose, again, we often treat Good Friday as that time of gloom because we're waiting for the the glory of Sunday morning. And, And there is a sense in which that's right to do because Friday represents a very dark day. Our sins were represented there. But when I read John's explanation here from verse 30 to the end of the chapter, the reality is a great triumph took place there on the cross. A great victory was won. And it wasn't just at the resurrection. It was won here when Christ died. On the cross, Jesus declared his victory. It is finished. Proclaiming to every believer, forgiveness has come, eternal life is secure, and access into the kingdom of God is made possible by his blood. Jesus surrendered his life on the cross to make full payment for sins. He then is a king like no other. We often hear that people would die for their king or their queen. Here the king dies for us. He dies for his people. And therefore the king is buried in honor by a couple of disciples that formerly had been secret disciples. We're afraid of men. And in three days, Jesus would walk out of the tomb, assuring his people of the power of the cross and the glory of his death. Now, in bringing this chapter to a close, we can see where the cross is truly the climactic moment of redemption. And it's our intention, my intention at least this morning, to end our study with the same attitude of triumph that we find in the dying words of Jesus when he said, It's finished. So first, consider with me that Christ's victory at death is our victory as well. Christ's victory at death is our victory as well. While it is true that there is sadness for the disciples as they witness Jesus die, yet when Jesus loudly cried out in triumph, it is finished, there was power in those words that transformed lives then And it continues to do so today. More than anything, it is because Jesus died for his people that you and I are assured of life eternal. The moment we came to faith, we will never die. Oh, the body's going to end. But because of Christ, do you realize you will never die? Paul wrote these words in Romans 14, verse 7 to 8. Mark them well. Listen carefully to what Paul writes. For not one of us lives for himself, not one dies for himself. For if we live, we live for the Lord. Or if we die, we die for what? The Lord. 
If we die, we die for the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. It should be our passion then to live well and to die well for Christ and in Christ. None of us knows what tomorrow holds. But whether we live or we die, we can do so in victory, a victory that Jesus earned for us when he gave up his life for his kingdom people. I look at this past year. There have been some hard times with regard to death. But praise God, we don't live and die for ourselves. In Christ, we live and die in Christ. The strength of Christ's death is our strength in death as well. We need to live well for Christ. We need to die well for Christ. Second, Christ's victory death is the strength of our faith. The very fact that our Savior died would be seen by the world as weakness. It is the strength of our faith. Notice again what John writes in verse 35 of chapter 19. He who has seen has testified. His testimony is true. He knows that he's telling the truth so that you may believe. The death of Jesus was critically important to John. The empty tomb confirms the reality of Christ's triumph, but when Christ surrendered his spirit up, our eternity in God's kingdom, it was there made secure. Sin was paid for. The veil was torn in two, making access for sinners into the kingdom of God possible. All because God was willing to die for us. The very strength of our faith is in a Savior that died. He's not dead now, but the very strength of our faith, John says, is in the fact that Christ died. He died in triumph. He died as a victor. And the empty tomb, three days later, will prove it. Third, Christ's victory should end any secrecy in discipleship. I go back to John chapter 12. Jesus has already taught this. Or John has already taught this in his gospel. But Christ's victory should end any secrecy in discipleship. In John chapter 12, verse 42 to 43, he writes, John writes, Many even of the rulers believed in Jesus. Many of the rulers believed. But because of the Pharisees, they were not confessing him for fear that they would be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the approval of men rather than the approval of God. Why is it we become cowardly at moments? Honestly, it's because we love the approval of men more than we love the approval of God. What John is showing us in this account of Christ's sacrifice is that the very power of the cross is in the fact that Christ died for us. That should, as it did with Joseph and Nicodemus, it should dispel any fear that we have before the world, the very power of our faith, the power of our Christianity, our existence here, is in the cross where our Savior died. His death should make us strong and courageous. It's the proof that we're a redeemed people. It's the validation that we belong to His eternal kingdom. Let the kingdoms and the nations of this world come and go because they will. And powerful men and women will come and go because they will. But the kingdom of God shall never pass away. 
And we always will belong to our king because of this moment when he surrendered his life, gave up his spirit, and declared, it's all been done. It's finished. In watching Jesus die, a criminal comes to faith, a Roman centurion confessed that Jesus truly was the Son of God. Adding to these, it appears two secret disciples of Christ are filled with courage to make themselves know for their, known for their devotion to their dead king. That's what they were doing before the Jews. They were making known their devotion to a king that is now dead. The death of Christ was a dramatic victory that the Holy Spirit used to bring many to faith and devotion to Christ. The significance of what took place on the cross then should fill our hearts with equal courage. We need that fresh courage, don't we, in this day and age? Because the world is going mad around us and they're ready to persecute any that will not walk in the darkness with them. They're going to hate our Jesus. They're going to hate us too. We need courage. Father in heaven, I thank you for the testimony of your servant John, who under the moving of your spirit has shown us the glory of the cross, the majesty that was found in the death of your son. The cry of Jesus, it is finished. It's our cry as well. All has been done for my salvation. All has been done for my sin. All has been done for my eternal destiny and for my citizenship in heaven. I praise you, God, for being a redeeming, loving God. We praise together your Son, who accomplished all that was needed. And we praise and worship your Spirit, who breathes into us new light and grants us the precious gift of believing in a Savior who died and rose again. In Christ we pray this. Amen. Please stand with us.